And here in Exodus chapter 14, this uh, last part of this chapter, we've reached the moment where Charlton Heston raises his hands on that rock outcropping and the Red Sea parts. We've been leading up to this moment in some ways for a very long time. God has been busy with the plagues, teaching his people, revealing to Pharaoh and Egypt his power over all of nature and creation, over all other false god and false idol. God has turned his people into the wilderness up against the shore of the Red Sea. He's leading them with this pillar of cloud and fire. And now we've reached this point where it's time for the slavery to Egypt, the connection to Egypt to finally be done with. At the end of this passage, Israel is on the other side of the Red Sea. The Egyptians no longer have any claim over them and it has all been done by the mighty hand of God. God has led them through the wilderness. He's led them to the shore of the Red Sea. He's put them in a position where their only salvation will be accomplished by the hand and the power of God. And this is what we watch happen this morning. And as God has done this, he's up to more than just one thing at a time. God is saving his people. And we're going to read right at the very end of this passage that his people are learning again, maybe in a new way, maybe for many of them, for the first time in a significant sense, to actually believe in him. That's the language that's used at the end of this passage. And the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord. God is up to this in the hearts and lives of his children. God is bringing justice to the Egyptians. They defy God one last time and they are destroyed for it. And then God continues to use this language. God is revealing his glory to the Egyptians, to the children of God, the Israelites, and to you and me. So these themes have been carrying us throughout this chapter, and they continue to carry us through the end of this chapter as we cross the Red Sea. The pillar of cloud and of fire that has been leading them now falls behind them and protects them as all of this unfolds. We see now how Moses is acting again as the visible symbol of the authority and the power of God and of the obedience of the children of Israel. And so what's gonna get uh, uh, developed later in later chapters, we just continue to see pieces of it through this passage. The people of Israel begin to see Moses as their divinely appointed leader, and they begin to trust him as well. So a lot of things happening in this passage. So as they cross the Red Sea, here are a few things I want us to keep in mind as we read through this passage. First of all, it takes courage to follow God to the shoreline. It takes courage to do this. Remember, when God led them out of Egypt, and we took a look at that map to see uh, where God probably led them to the wilderness versus what would have been the short and easy route right along the Mediterranean Sea into the southern border of the Promised Land. God doesn't go that way. He goes through the wilderness, and Moses obeys, and the children of Israel follow And when they hit the shore of the Red Sea, God's first word at that point was, wait, be silent, and see the hand of God. That's how our last passage of scripture ended. Now the word is go. 
They're gonna discover and we see that it is impossible to move forward unless it is done by God. There's so much happening here. So it takes courage to follow God to the shoreline. We see in this passage, in this dramatic fashion, that God goes ahead of us, God goes behind us. God leads and God protects. The enemy, Egypt, will only go as far as God allows them to go. God goes ahead of us and he goes behind us. And then you and I, I think as much as anything else this morning, we're going to watch this thing develop that is such an important key to our discipleship, to many of the stories that are in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that is the connection, the necessary and glorious connection between obedience and trust. Obeying God and what he has commanded us to do, obeying his word, hearing the things that Christ teaches us and learning to walk in his ways and gaining in our trust, our faith in God. And we see that cycle work in this passage. The astounding miracle that we watch happen evokes awe in the children of God. And it's both fear of God and belief in God. And now on the other side of the Red Sea, obedience is laid before them. What will they do? How will they walk this path now? So let's begin reading in our passage this morning. Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh his chariots, and his horsemen. Why do you cry out to me? Let's recall that at the end of the last passage, the children of Israel, they realize that they're stuck between the shore and the Egyptians who are behind them. There's nowhere in the natural sense of things uh, that they know to go to, to save themselves. Those they complain to Moses, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die so we could die out here? There is this complaint. And Moses encourages them again, let's just wait and be silent, and let's watch and see what God is going to do. This complaint, maybe Moses brought it to God, and God is speaking to about the people of Israel. Whatever the case may be, the time now that God says it is, is the time to go. They had stopped and they had waited, and now, by the hand of God, their salvation will come. So Moses is told to lift up his staff and if you're reading through this book, paying attention to just some of these literary bits and pieces, again, Moses is always connected to what God does with water. It's how he is saved. It's how Israel is saved now with the Red Sea, and he's going to strike the rock, and water will flow. And he does it with his staff that he's been carrying with him since he was in the desert of Midian. So Moses always has this staff, again, as a symbol of the authority and the power of God. 
And God says, hold this staff up over the sea and divide it so that the people of Israel may go through. That word that God uses, that verb for to divide, is, is really a provocative word. It means to cleave in two. You might use this verb to also talk about how you would take an ax and cleave a log in two, to divide a log in two. So what Israel is going to see is going to be dramatic. I mean, we kind of lose adjectives to describe the parting of the Red Sea walking on dry ground, dry ground. The seafloor will be dry for them. When was the last time that seafloor was dry? But then by the time the Egyptians come marching through with their advanced military technology that nobody can overcome, the ground is suddenly muddy and their chariots get stuck. But Israel's gonna walk through on dry ground. And as God puts it in this passage, the hardening of the Egyptians' hearts continues. Their inclination against God, their inclination against the people of God, in this cycle of them hardening their hearts and the language of God strengthening their hearts in their will against him continues. And in fact, we've reached the point where their character, their will against God and his people is going to drive them into an obviously dangerous situation. Cliffs of water on either side. And in fact, their inclination to kill, destroy, re-enslave the people of God will not only lead them into a dangerous situation, it will lead them to their doom. God is doing so much for his people in this passage of scripture. So I want us to see this as we continue to walk through what happens in the way that Exodus 14 describes it for us. It took radical patience to wait during difficulty. They're there between, as we put it, the devil and the deep blue sea. It took radical patience to wait during difficulty and it's going to take courage to step forward into the sea. The only way to safety and salvation is the way that God leads. There's no other answer to this problem. And at this point, it's into the sea. Now, it's interesting that the wandering in the wilderness, the beginning and the end of the Exodus, is bookended with these crossings. Here, it's the crossing of the Red Sea. And then we make our way through the rest of this story of the Exodus and the end of Deuteronomy and Moses dies and they haven't entered the promised land. They're on the other side of the River Jordan and then Joshua takes over. And in order for Israel to make their way into the promised land, to begin conquering and clearing the land that God has given them, there's another body of water to cross. And it's the same kind of scenario. And there's a way in which the courage of stepping into the water becomes even clearer to us the way it happens in the book of Joshua. So just before the battle of Jericho, we get to Joshua chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, and here's how the story goes. Joshua 3 says this, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. 
That's significant for us because that at that moment is the image of the presence of God going before them, of God making this clear and possible for them. In the book of Exodus, what we're reading is the, the pillar of cloud and of fire, the hand of God that splits it. And so now after the Ark of the Covenant has been built and the tabernacle, now it's the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, this is Joshua's command to the people, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of, their, of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. The river stops, and they get to cross on dry ground again. But did you notice that in the middle of the passage, God's not going to do it until you actually step out there and you stand in the water. You obey God's command, you're gonna get your feet wet, but as soon as that happens, that river's gonna to start to dry, and God is going to make a way. This obedience takes courage. They had to step into the water before it parted. And then after this is all over, Joshua reminds them of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. Joshua 4. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. We made a point of this last time, but it bears repeating over and over again. God is showing his mighty hand to save his people because we cannot save ourselves. We require the hand of God for this salvation, for him to carry us through this life by his mercy and grace and safely into his arms for all of eternity. We're watching the hand of God save us, but so is all of the rest of the earth. We now as saved men and women of God, the children of God, we stand as a testimony to the glory and the power and the saving goodness of God. Not of our own strength and power, but of his. So God says in Exodus 14, I will get glory over them. And Joshua reminds them in chapter four, it is because of the power of God that you have been saved. We must be reminded of this over and over again. And I want us to think through this for a moment. That obedience often requires courage. Obedience to the voice of God, the word of God, the things that he's given us here. Obedience to the things that Christ has taught us to do. It often requires courage. Courage over our own sinful inclinations. Courage over our own fears and anxieties, which we use to try to control and make sense of the world, but God is calling us to obey him instead of our own sin. Courage in the face of a culture that continues to walk in the other direction. And when the world around us is going in one direction, God calls us to go in his direction. We're going to feel it. It's going to be different. It might even be difficult. Courage is going to 
Obedience is gonna require courage so often. Friends, courage very simply is the ability to do the right thing when it is the hard thing to do. This is the simple, straightforward understanding of the virtue of courage, courage in general, and the courage to follow Christ, to do the right thing, to do the thing that is honoring to Christ and to God when it is the hardest thing to do. This requires courage. Courage is the realization that there are more important things than my ease and my comfort. Courage in the context of following Jesus Christ is gonna cause me to realize, in fact, we may put it this way, it comes from the understanding in my soul that there are some things that are more important than my ease and my comfort and that is the will of God in my life. That is what Christ has taught me to do. That is listening to the voice of God and obeying the word of God. Returning to Egypt as slaves is the constant temptation. We've watched it already in the nation of Israel. They have wanted to voluntarily return to Egypt as slaves. Isn't that a powerful thing? They've hit this point of conflict and it's gonna take clarity and patience and courage to obey God. And there are many among them who say, that's just too much. At least we knew what life was like when we were slaves. Let's just go back. That's always inside of us. But following God into the sea is the option of obedience. Our own inclinations to sin, our old habits tell us that the easy way is at hand. We can just go back to doing this. We can just go back to doing this. But our call to follow God drives us forward after him no matter what. So we have that temptation within us. And then we have these pressures from without as well as from within. Our culture just makes following Jesus Christ in public more and more odd. You stick out more. It's stranger for people in public now to believe the things that scripture teaches us but the virgin birth, the sinless life, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fruit of the spirit alive within us, Jesus Christ as our soon and coming king, all of these things, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, that there is only one way to the Father and that is through Jesus. To believe that in public is becoming stranger all the time. The scriptural belief that marriage is between one man and one woman makes the world uncomfortable. This belief is strange and odd and oppressive and colonial and blah, 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 blah. And it's not just odd and pressed off into the corner. It's actually a point of view that's becoming persecuted now. Obeying Jesus Christ requires courage more and more. So which path are we going to follow? The complaining that rises up amongst the Israelites, amongst the people of God, that say it was easier when we lived like Egyptians. Or are we gonna follow God in his mighty hand through the Red Sea? Friends, it is exactly at the point when the choice needs to be made 
that the world needs the courageous man or woman. It's exactly at that point that the world needs us to follow Christ courageously. And as we see so dramatically in this passage, if we read the other stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament through this kind of lens, we see the same pattern showing up. Obedience leads to the revelation of the will of God, what God wants done and how God wants to do it. Obedience leads to the revelation of the will of God and obedience leads to the revelation of the power of God. And we see only God could have done this. God has used our obedience to make it happen. A life of obedience, friends, is so often a life of courage, but it is always, it is always a life that honors God and reveals the will and the power of God. Let's continue to read through this passage. Watch how it unfolds. Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the hosts of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. That's how long this takes, is all night. Then in the morning, uh, the sea closes back up again and we sort of behold what God has done. So God has gone ahead of them, this pillar of fire and cloud, and he's led them to this point. And then they've reached this moment, it's time for them to go, so God now moves. The angel of the Lord simply means the messenger, the presence of God there, moves now behind them to protect them as the sea parts and as they cross. Friends, I love this thought, and I want this thought to be an encouragement to us. God is in control of how far the enemy can go. He stops them at the sea until he is done saving his people. God is in control of how far the enemy will go. He is even in control of the end of the enemy, of their end at the bottom of the Red Sea. This is important for us to hear and to know personally because these things can tear apart. It can actually play with our souls and cause anxiety and concern if we're not willing to see how the power of God works in these kinds of ways. The enemy may want to destroy you. You may even feel it and know it. You may be watching it happen inside of your life, inside of the vocation that God has given you, that the enemy is attacking, and things seem to be unraveling. And it may appear that there is no limit to the powers that are at work against you. But friends, are you following God? Are you learning to obey him even when it is hard? If you are a child of God, then God is in control of the enemy as well. There is no enemy, seen or unseen, who can overpower the plan and the power of God. So if you are his child, take comfort. Take comfort. 
I was reading through several Psalms with this thought in mind. And we could have spent the rest of the day reading David and the Psalms, reflecting on this very thought. But here's one of these moments, these dramatic moments in Psalm 27, the first three verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh and my goodness, that's what it feels like. My adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Why? Because the Lord is for me. Who can be against me? Of whom should I even be afraid? The answer is there is no one like our God. There is no one like our God. So this pillar that's been leading them, the angel or the presence of God, now moves behind them to protect them while the rest of the story unfolds. Verse 21 in Exodus 14. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove, back the, drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire of cloud looked down upon the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So the waters are divided. The east wind blows, and the children of Israel begin to cross the Red Sea on dry ground. The question always is and always arises, and I only bring this up because I think there's a pretty straightforward answer to this question. Was this a natural occurrence that just sort of accidentally happened at this moment? The Bible says, well, the strong wind blew, and you know like the Red Sea does on a regular basis, it just dries up. Or is this a miracle? The answer is yes. God continues to teach Israel, and he continues to teach the Egyptians, and he continues to teach us, I am in control of all of this. There's a moment in a storm on the Sea of Galilee when the disciples are amazed at Christ calming the storm. They said, who is this dude that even the winds and the seas obey him? God has been throughout the plagues making use of nature to declare himself to be Lord over all of these things. So God sends this wind and he just divides this sea. And we have these monumental cliffs of water on their right hand and on their left as they make their way through now on dry ground. And we cannot, 
as we read this passage, lose sight of the magnitude of this miracle, the sheer scope and power of what Moses and Israel see and what it does for them. Friends, we can never lose sight of this truth. Our God is mighty to save. He is just mighty to save. Every Israelite is saved. Not a single one of them is lost. I was listening to another pastor a long time ago, and I heard him put it this way, and I love the way that he talked about it. He said, you know, if you can imagine that entire nation of people making their way through, through the Red Sea and these cliffs uh, of, of water on either side and this wind is blowing and some of them are walking through and they're going, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. And then there's other people walking through, they're going, this is the coolest thing I have ever seen. All of them are just as saved. Every single one of them is just as saved because it wasn't the strength of their faith. It wasn't the strength of their power and might that saved them. It was the power of God that saved every one of them. The Egyptians are thrown into a panic. Their chariots, their advanced technology gets stuck in the mud. (laughs) Can you imagine what begins to dawn on these Egyptians? And they say, we need to turn around because it is the Lord who fights for them. Even their enemy realizes it is by the power of God. And his glory is being made manifest to everyone in this story. So it continues now in verse 26 of chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians who pursued them into the sea, the enemy that pursued God's people into the sea are now all dead. They're gone. The next couple of verses, essentially, well, not essentially, they say the only thing that, was, that remained of the Egyptians were their corpses as they washed up on the other side of the shore. So now Israel stands on the other side of the shore, untouchable by Egypt. God fought their battles for them, and God freed them by his gracious power. What an overwhelming end to generations of slavery to the Egyptians. And now the challenge of obedience lies before them. There's an interesting movement in the way this story develops. 
up to this point, from the moment that morning when they were um, released from Egypt itself and they plundered the Egyptians and that short little passage where God says, instead of sending them by way of the Philistines, we're gonna turn right into the wilderness. God's reasoning was, if they head toward the Philistines, they're gonna run into battle and they're gonna turn around and go back to Egypt. I'm not gonna allow that. God sends them to the shore of the Red Sea and instead of turning them around to do battle with the Egyptians, the Lord fights for them. So until they cross the Red Sea, God is doing all of the fighting for them through the plagues and through the crossing of the Red Sea. And now obedience lies ahead of them and the Israelites now will engage in battle along the way. Will they know who their God is even when they engage in battle? So this question now lays before them on the other side of the Red Sea. And as would be expected, God's salvation at the Red Sea becomes absolutely critical to the identity and the memory of God's people. The prophets remember this. The psalmists remember this over and over again. Again, we could read dozens of passages of Scripture like this, but a couple that I think are important for us to hear or may even be familiar to many of us, but I want to read in this context The prophet Isaiah calls on this imagery to speak of the power and goodness of God. In Isaiah 43, the first couple of verses, he says this, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Do you remember that time when you walked through the waters and I was with you and not one of you was lost? Do you remember when you crossed the Jordan River and you conquered the promised land that I gave you? I am the one who did that. I created you, I named you, I formed you, I redeemed you. And when you walk through the fire, I will be with you. This is the story of obedience and our trust in God. Later in Isaiah chapter 51, verses 10 and 11, the prophet says this, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. See, there's this imagery that comes to us through the course of church history this image of crossing the final river. So we cross the Jordan, so to speak. Some of you may be old enough to remember these hymns and these songs and this imagery when we make our way into the presence of God and there's nothing but the joy of the Lord forever. It is God who does this. It is God who does this for us. Then even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul hearkens back to this moment and he uses it as an image of the baptism of the church. This public belonging to God. 1 Corinthians 10 Verses one and two, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud 
and passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses, meaning Moses as their leader in the cloud and in the sea. And Paul moves forward, encouraging us toward obedience instead of disobedience because we have been baptized into Jesus Christ. So through all of this, the power and the hand and the majesty of God saving his people, we come to the last couple of verses of this chapter and it sort of seals the moment And it seals the moment not just for the Egyptians and for their pursuit of the people of God, but it also kind of puts a seal on the moment between the people of God and him as well. So verses 30 and 31 say this, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The awesome power of God, seen and known and experienced and understood, evokes this reaction. They fear the Lord and they believe in the Lord. The fear of the Lord. The way scripture uses this term means everything from actual fear. This is the God who can drown the Egyptian army. This is the God who could have closed the sea on us, but he did not. Actual fear, the kind of power that the glory of this God has. From that sense of the fear of the Lord to thankful and grateful awe at what God has done. So they fear the Lord. He has saved us. And this, friends, is a completely appropriate response to who God is. I think sometimes the church of Jesus Christ right now holds the glory of God too lightly. We play with it. We use weird language for it sometimes, and we don't understand the heft of the glory of God, because it evokes fear in us. And then it says in Israel, believed in the Lord. And wouldn't it be great if that was the final word on it, (laughs) that from here on out, they just believed in the Lord. And this word is used in terms at this point as they now are putting their trust in the Lord. It's a way in which we would talk about faith or trust. And so we see in this passage this powerful relationship between obedience and trust. Raise your hands, Moses. Cleave the sea in two and let the people of Israel cross through. They've obeyed. And now through their obedience, their faith, their trust in God has grown significantly. One builds the other. Through the plagues, God has done so much for his people. And now he calls on them to follow him and obey him at a point of life and death. And with death on three sides of them, God opens the way and protects them from their enemy. From the obedience to God, our obedience to God and God's power and grace upon us 
creates or builds our belief in him, our trust in him. It builds our faith in him. I want us walking away with this thought, with this passage of scripture, that obedience reveals our trust in God and it makes it stronger. When we obey in God, it means that I do actually trust him. I do actually believe that what he said is true. I do really believe that the things that Christ has taught me to do and say and believe, that these things are right and good and true, and so I will obey them. And the more we obey, the more we walk in that path of obedience, as we learn to trust in him, as we learn to lean on him, instead of, as scripture says, on our own understanding, we're gonna learn that he is reliable and right and good and faithful and true, and it just creates more excitement for obedience in God. So it creates this beautiful cycle of relationship, learning how good God is by following him, by obeying him. We prayed something like this this morning. At the end of our time of praise and worship, we have to ask ourselves, is he or is he not Lord over all creation? Is he or is he not? If he is, why would I not obey him? Is he or is he not the great God over all of the powers of heaven and earth? How can I say I trust him and not obey him? How can I say as someone who bears the name of Christ, how can I say that I trust Christ and I don't obey him and I don't obey him? The author Dallas Willard puts it a little bit like this. If I say I trust Christ and I do not strive to obey him, I am self-deceived. I may believe a story about him, but I don't believe him, that he is my God and that he is my Lord. Just like Israel, I am not saved because I obeyed, but I obey because the God who saved me it's the only one in the end that I can trust. That's where our obedience comes from. And when I do obey, friends, I learn that what Christ says is right and good and true. Christ really is right about forgiveness, about humility, about what love truly looks like. He really is right about what the enemy is up to and what it means to steadfastly follow him and we will be saved. Jesus really is right about all of that. So if I trust that, I will obey it. And my faith is built when I obey. Friends, this kind of conversation, I think, requires us to ask ourselves questions like this, who do I really trust with my life? And why do I trust them with it? Maybe to be a little bit more specific, who guides my path? What influences in my life tell me what to do? Tell me what the good life looks like. Tell me what success looks like.
What influences tell me what's good and bad, moral or immoral, right or wrong? Where do I get my sense of what is valuable in life? What builds the sense of my priorities in life? Because when I answer those kinds of questions, and too many of them are answered by this thing, when I answer those kinds of questions, then I can tell you who you obey. Then I learn who I obey. But then you've got to ask yourself, can social media influencers bear the weight of your soul? Can your favorite political commentators and politicians bear the weight of your soul into eternity? Clear answers to these questions are that's ridiculous. There's only one who can. Son of God, Jesus Christ, who revealed his glory upon the cross and saved every one of us by the shedding of his blood. And we now walk as people who follow him, obey him, and live as those who declare the glory of God. This is who is worthy. This is the only one. He is the only one who can bear the weight of our souls through the Red Sea and onto the other side. Let us follow Jesus. Let's pray.